In order to understand a bigot from the inside, you need to know what it's like to have a set of feelings you prize beyond price, and of which you are at the same time ashamed. You prize them because they are all that sustain you, the record of the crimes against you, the history of your years of endurance, the broken promises you have replaced with the ones you've now made to yourself, a kingdom to come with revenge as reward. I have known men, for instance, who for years have voted squarely against their interests. They tend to back their country like they back their local team. They have a fanatical desire to win. Yelling is their forte. And if things go badly, they are inclined to sack the coach. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from the SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's November 1st, 2020, and today we are really looking to be astounded on this Day of the Dead and on the eve of Election Day. And we'll do so with the writer Alec Nevola Lee, who has become most people's introduction to William H. Gass's The Tunnel. Alec Neville Lee was a Hugo and Locus Award finalist for the group biography entitled Astounding. John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction, which was named one of the best books of 2018 by The Economist. His novels include the thrillers The Icon Thief, City of Exiles, and Eternal Empire all published by Penguin. On the short fiction side, his stories appear frequently in the magazine Analog Science Fiction and Fact and have, be, and have been reprinted in Lightspeed and two editions of this year's best science fiction. Syndromes, an audio original collection of his science fiction, is available from recorded books. His essays, reviews, and nonfiction have been featured in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Salon, The Rumpus, Public Books, and The Daily Beast. He is currently at work on a biography of the architectural designer and futurist Buckminster Fuller. More information about him can be found at his website, nevola-lee.com. It truly is an honor to be speaking with him this morning. How are you doing, Alec? Um, I'm doing fine, Douglas. How are you? I'm doing pretty good too. So how in the world does one become many people's introduction to William H. Gass's The Tunnel? And what were the pink pages? Uh, well, I mean, it, it, that process, uh, so, so Gass uh, spent about 25 years writing The Tunnel and uh, it took me about that long to get to the point where I could write a 700 word essay on The Tunnel uh, because I first discovered uh, the book through a review uh, that was published when it first came out in 1995, I believe, in the arts supplement to the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, so I, I grew up in the Bay Area, and uh, every Sunday we would get this tabloid-style arts uh, section on pink paper, which, you know, uh, to me is still like a very vivid memory of, of going through these reviews and, and cultural pieces and coverage, you know, really great movie reviews, uh, you know, um, pieces on uh, Bay Area uh, arts and, and entertainment. And uh, they had great book reviews. 
And um, there was a particular weekend in 1995 when the lead review um, was a review of William H. Gass's The Tunnel. I'd never heard of Gass. I'd never heard of uh, his work until then. Um, But for some reason, this review, which I I, I can see now is by uh, Paul Skenazy of The Chronicle, uh, really caught my imagination, you know, because it described this book that sounded, I, I mean, I think it's safe to say this book sounds insane. It's this, uh, you know, 600 plus page gargantuan novel that is essentially one man's inner monologue that encompasses uh, the rise of Hitler and and fascism in the United States, you know, his unhappy childhood, um, academic gossip, you know, this sort of amazing stream of consciousness, uh, torrent of despair with, you know, comic strip panels and pieces of ephemera, like notes on the back of a paper uh, grocery bag. So, you know, it, it sounded like a very strange book. And, you know, I was the kind of uh, teenager at the time who would have really um, been intrigued by the just the, the sheer idea of a novel like this. I, I was very into the idea of metafiction or kind of books that pushed against the, the constraints of um, the novel form. So I kind of, I, I assume I just sort of filed that, that away. And it took me another, I would say, probably 10 years before I actually bought a copy. I was, you know, I, I would always like kind of look at it at bookstores and libraries and be like, okay, someday I'll, I'll check it out. Uh, you know, finally bought a copy at the Strand Bookstore in New York, my favorite bookstore in the world, probably in the mid 2000s. And then it just kind of sat on my shelf for many years. I, I knew parts of it fairly well. I would read the first few pages, but it was always this very daunting kind of, uh, you know, one of those great unread books that I had on my shelf that I, I was going to get around to someday. Um, but what happened is that somewhere around the time of the um, 2018 midterms, it, it occurred to me that there really needed to be a book that related William H. Gass's The Tunnel to the rise of Donald Trump. And this was not a, a subject that I, you know, really was looking forward to tackling because I knew it would be a lot of work and it would be very draining in a lot of ways. But it had to happen. You know, it, it really seemed like an essay that had to exist. So I, I took some time and I, and I wrote it. And uh, the New York Times published it uh, about a year and a half ago. And you had the sense, even though you hadn't read the book, that that book spoke directly to our moment? Yeah, so it's it's been a while, and so and, and you know I've lived with this book in certain ways since then, and you know so much that it's hard for me to even reconstruct what I knew about it before I, I took that deep dive. But my my best recollection is that I was familiar with the idea that um, Kohler, the main character in the tunnel, uh, spends a lot of time in the book inventing what he calls the party of disappointed people, which is uh, sort of a fake political party that Gass uses to kind of parody uh, the Nazi party, but also certain forms of fascist tendencies in the US. And, you know, he, he, you know, the book contains his sketches of the pennant of the party of disappointed people and, you know, pictures of the insignia and the little hats they would wear. And, you know, I, I knew enough about the book, when, you know, just remembering the name uh, of, of the party that, gas creates. Um, there, there seemed to be a connection there that I, I, I thought might be worth exploring. 
And um, yeah, and I mean, at that point, I had not actually read the, the entire book, but you know, once you go in there and start to look at those sections, which you know is not, I would say the bulk of the book is about other stuff, but there is like a very rich vein of material about this uh, subject. And once you start looking at those pages, once you start looking at the party of the disappointed people, the, the parallels were really so strong that all I really had to do was write an essay that would collect the most striking quotations. And I, and I kind of figured, and I think it, it does work in this way, that I didn't have to spell out those connections. I think most readers could make those connections for themselves. Yeah. And so what was your experience? So after, you know, carrying the book around for a number of years, what was it, what was the experience like reading it? Um, I mean, it was intense, right? I mean, it, it is a very, it's, it's funny because at one point I was probably halfway through and my wife asked me, so do you recommend it? And, and I was like, I don't even know. I don't even know there's like a good answer to the question. Do I recommend The Tunnel by William H. Gass? The, the, the intended audience for this book, I think, is very limited. Um, and I think I barely end up in that category. Um, it, it's a very difficult book in some ways. I mean, each each paragraph is very readable. You know, his his prose is fantastic. But then it just goes on and on in this way that, you know, it's very intentional. It's, it's kind of like crushing emotional experience where you, the reader, are kind of, um, you know, like the, the metaphor of the book is the protagonist digging a literal tunnel out of his basement to nowhere. And that's kind of how you feel as the reader of this book, that you're being crushed by this mass of material above you and you're getting squeezed down into this really uncomfortable psychological space so if that sounds appealing you know that's that is the experience and it's it's one that you have to kind of live in for i'm guessing at least a few weeks for most people to get to the end and that was certainly my experience yeah it was my experience too um but so you definitely are a a person who enjoys the idea of reading the great books you know you mentioned Mm -hmm. so um not only did you write this New York Times piece that anyone who, you know, Googles the tunnel ends up finding, but you also wrote uh, another essay about writing that piece for the Tunnel at 25 website. Um, and in that, you, you mentioned, you know, other books that you, you've longed to read but haven't gotten around to, like The Recognitions or mm-hmm. Infinite Jest. I'm wondering... Like, uh, have you read any James Joyce or um, is it do you need something to kind of push you like a project to to make it real enough to, to dive into some of these great works? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, there certainly was an, uh, a time in my life when I was very serious about going through the great books, sort of what I thought of as like the Western canon. So I, I did read. I read a lot of Joyce. I still think about Joyce all the time. Um, I just finished reading Richard Elman's biography of Joyce and, you know, kind of got back into him this year for that reason. I, I do find that I, it does help to have a project. I mean, I am a professional writer and I often pick subjects based on what it will allow me to read. Uh, you know, so for example, I wrote a book about the history of golden age science fiction. And part of the reason I I wanted to write that is because I figured I would really enjoy going back and reading, you know, many old issues of pulp science fiction magazines and and reading about these writers. And, you know, so the process of research would, um, uh, kind of be a reward in itself. And same thing, you know, my current book is a book about, uh, the architectural designer Buckminster Fuller. And, you know, a part of it was, is this someone who's, ideas I want to spend two years exploring. You know, do I want to take a deep dive into this guy and have an excuse to read everything he ever wrote and kind of figure it out for myself? So, you know, I, I think I've reached the point of my life where 
as a grown up, as a, you know, sort of responsible, uh, professional uh, author, I, I need, it, it definitely helps to have a project to structure a month long dive into someone's work. But, you know, it really is almost like a pretext. So the, the New York Times piece, for example, I, I knew I wanted to pitch the piece to the New York Times book review. And I knew it was going to be about, you know, 600, 700 words long. It would pay a few hundred dollars at the most. And it was a month of work, you know, because I had to read the tunnel. I had to read a lot of other Gass's, uh, of, of Gass's other works because I, I didn't know as much about his previous fiction as I wanted to. I read a lot of his essays. I read a lot of interviews with him. So, you know, for, for a fairly short piece that did not pay that much money, you know, the professional angle was uh, kind of tenuous. But, you know, it, it gave me the, the motivation, I guess, to, to tackle that project. Well, so that actually brings up, you know, you, you mentioned this this biography you did about the golden age of the science fiction and the pulps. Um, I was curious whether or not you had done some of the heavy lifting of all that reading in your youth. Um, you know, yes and no. Uh, this is true of everything I've done. I, 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 I'm definitely drawn to subjects that intrigue me. You know, I mentioned reading about the tunnel when I was about 14. You know, there's something about that age, like between 12, 13, 14, where you kind of are drawn to certain subjects. And I think, um, you know, one of my heroes is a film editor named Walter Murch, who worked on, you know, the Godfather movies and Apocalypse Now and The English Patient. I think he's one of the smartest people in, in the arts. And he, he once said that, you know, if you want to be happy as a grown up, you should do what you loved and thought was cool when you were 12. And, and I kind of believe that. And, and so... Science fiction to me, obviously, you know, there's, there's a famous saying that the, the real golden age of science fiction is 12, because what you discover when you're that age is what kind of stays with you for the rest of your life. And certainly when I was younger, I had read a lot of um, science fiction, not in a very systematic way. Uh, I had read very little of the four authors uh, who I focus on in my book. Uh, I'd read a couple of Heinlein novels. I'd read a lot of Asimov's uh, nonfiction, a little bit of his fiction. I hadn't read Hubbard, obviously. I hadn't really read Campbell. Um, and so it, it was sort of like the idea for working through this material had been planted very early on. And I was kind of going back to stuff I cared about when I was younger. But the the physical work of reading through hundreds of science fiction stories and novels, that's all something I did basically in the course of a year. Wow. Well, so <laughs> here's going to be a strange question. At the end of the tunnel, did did you like Kohler or did you have empathy net maybe for Kohler because of the time that you spent with him? And that's a great question. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you're supposed to have empathy for Kohler because gas just really works to make you dislike this guy. You know, even though there are some beautiful passages about his childhood and you understand kind of where he comes from and, you know, very, very like emotional sections about his earlier life. You know, he is so unappealing. He, he is just designed to be unappealing and to embody, you know, some incredibly hateful ideas that he he writes about as a scholar, but also sort of has absorbed. And, um, you know, I, I don't think... I, I don't know. I, I, I it's it's been it's been long enough where I, I don't recall my my exact emotion when I closed the book for the first time. But looking back now, I think I understand Kohler, but that's not the same thing as sympathizing with him. Right. And then at the end of Astounding, you know, how do you feel about those individuals? Your your L. Ron Hubbard, Isaac Asimov, 
John W. Campbell, who I didn't even know of. I'm sure I bumped into him, but like making him the center of this was really important. Um, how did you feel about those guys? That, that's also a good question. Um, you know, some ways more relevant, or you know, one that I think about more than I, than you know how I feel about someone like a a Kohler, like a fictional character. Because um, you know, I mean, I, I've written, uh, I've published one biography about four very complex people, and I'm currently close to finishing another one about another complex person, and they are all very flawed human beings. Uh, and I've been asked before, you know, why you pick these kinds of uh, characters to write about, um, and it's like. For one thing, I don't always go in expecting to to like find a lot of um, disturbing material. You know, I, I didn't know much about Campbell going in. My my uh, ideas about Buckminster Fuller were very, um, you know, they they were based on the previous works I had access to, which do not reflect his complexity at all. So you kind of discover as you go along, you know, that these people were nothing like the idea you had about them when you when you started uh, and I think that's a great thing for a biographer I think that's a great process to go through when you're trying to kind of figure out who somebody is you, you don't go in with like a preconceived notion you know and, and you kind of have to kind of make sense of this person's life as you go along and at the end you know I I have very complex feelings towards these people um someone like Campbell for example you know I mean I think my book um played a big role in kind of the debate around Campbell that you've seen in science fiction, if you're a member of that community over the past couple of years, where, you know, you're coming to terms with the fact that he was racist, that he did some really bad things or, or expressed some some very uh, bad uh, views in the magazine, and, and that this really affected the way science fiction evolved. And, and, and what do you do with that? You know, that, that's a good question. And, and I think I, I take a lot of responsibility for um, bringing that uh, or, you know, kind of raising that, that conversation. But at the same time, I'm also trying to make a case for his importance, uh, you know, and I do think he's a, a crucial figure. I think he's he's fascinating. And, you know, I, I care about him in ways that you can only care about someone you've spent two years thinking about in this way, where I've read his letters and I've read, you know, very intimate moments, you know, in his personal life. And I've seen the worst side of him and the best side of him. And, um you know, I, I don't think it, it's very hard for someone who is not who hasn't been through that process to understand how ambivalent and kind of messy that that uh, relationship can be between a biographer and his subject. But in my case, you know, um, I, I do care about all of them, you know, in, in, in a strange way, even Hubbard, even even the, the least sympathetic person in that story. You know, they're all important to me in ways that I, I actually have trouble really expressing. So how might, you know, the layperson on the street know Campbell, you know, what would what would be something that they would like, oh, I didn't know that. And then, you know, what is his real importance as uh, the center of this movement? So the, the one thing that people know about Campbell, if you're not a science fiction fan, is that he wrote the story Who Goes There, which was adapted into The Thing. Um, so there have been three movies based on that story, The Thing, and uh, various remakes. And, um, you know, so that's, that's a clear, th that is his most um, lasting, undeniable contribution to pop culture. You know, that, that story, I think, is going to remain of interest forever. Um, but, you know, he wrote that story when he was 27 years old. 
And it was one of the very last stories he wrote because around that time he, he got the job as editor of the magazine then known as Astounding Stories, which he uh, rechristened Astounding Science Fiction. And uh, it, it really was the leading magazine uh, in the American pulp science fiction market for years. And Campbell was the single most powerful figure in science fiction for, for the entire time. So when you look at what American science fiction became, it's largely a uh, result of Campbell's attitudes, his prejudices, his his convictions about what the genre could be, what science was, what its what its uh, relationship to the real world could be, which he expressed not so much in his own fiction, but through the work of people like Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov and A.E. Van Vogt and Lee Brackett and Catherine Moore and, and you know, the people that he published during that period, Theodore Sturgeon. You know, incredibly important names who, you know, for for I would say the better part of a decade were expressing Campbell's ideas about what science fiction was. And I think that legacy is still very strong in ways that um, aren't obvious, but um, I think are recognizable even to people that, that don't know who Campbell was or what he did. Well, I feel like I've been reading around the margins of your book for a number of years, and it's it's possible that I've bumped into Campbell, but not as the central figure or anything. Um, it seems like James Glick has been writing a bunch of really interesting bios on uh, people in science, and I think his last one was actually science fiction. Um, um, you mentioned about early science fiction conferences, and I read The Night Ocean, um, which is about Lovecraft and it, it's fiction, but it's also s somewhat true. Was like this character Barlow, I think is his name, um, and Lovecraft, were they around the same time at these conferences that Campbell was, you know, where the Futurians were? Uh, you know, that, that's a good question. There is overlap between Lovecraft and, and a lot of these writers. You know, he did encounter a lot of um, the people I write about sort of in passing in New York in this period. Um, I'm not a Lovecraft expert, and so I can't say for sure. Um, but uh, I, I think I think there's definitely overlap there. I, I think, um, you know, that, that world is very small. The, the number of people who saw themselves as serious science fiction and fantasy fans, um, you know, in some place like New York City was maybe a, a few hundred people. And, and they, they knew each other and they had, uh, you know, like, 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 you know, I always say that the, the dynamics within science fiction in the 30s were very similar to the dynamics we see in, in fandom today online. But they happened, you know, in a couple of clubs in mimeographed fanzines and letters columns, um, you know, fan culture has not changed that much since, um, uh, you know, the, that period. And so when you go back and read about some of the fan controversies of 1937, it, it does definitely sound familiar to someone who follows this stuff today. Well, so I haven't ever seen the film The Master, I think is what it's called. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that film? Yeah, I saw it when it came out. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Paul Thomas Anderson. And uh, yeah, no, I, I saw it on its first release, but I haven't watched it since. Oh, you haven't seen it since. So I'm curious if, because I'm pretty sure that it's it's loosely based on L. Ron Hubbard, but um, mm -hmm. do you have that in your head as far as like whether or not it, because, you know, you did a bio on L. Ron Hubbard, it, you know, the veracity of the film, or is it more of a, just a film with a, using him as a jumping off point. 
Well, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, one is that it's clearly a work of imagination. And I, I, I remember reading that Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays the figure who is clearly like a Hubbard figure, was um, also influenced by people like Orson Welles. You know, there, there are other people in that character besides Hubbard. Um, and, you know, but I, I will say, you know, that I think um, on a less factual, more of a kind of like a, a higher level, I think it does capture a lot about Hubbard and especially, you know, the appeal he had to people, you know, that, that kind of charisma is, is very clear. You know, this is something that I always try to stress with Hubbard, which is that there is like a narrative now because Scientology has become such a cultural punching bag. And, and you know, for good reason, you know, that Hubbard himself, you know, he's often dismissed as this no, no talent, nothing con man. But, you know, you look back at his reputation in science fiction, and he impressed everyone. He impressed Campbell, he impressed Heinlein, Asimov, not just as a writer, but in, in person. He was he was a very overwhelming figure. And so, you know, I don't want to underrate how powerful an impact he made on the lives of people around him, which is, I think, is undeniable. And you watch The Master and, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, obviously one of the great performances of recent years, you know, really embodies that. And the scene where he and Joaquin Phoenix, uh, it's basically like an auditing scene uh, where he, he, he subjects that character to, to his, his therapy. Um, to me, I mean, I, I have not actually been through the experience of, of auditing as practiced in Scientology, but it, it does capture a lot of what I have inferred from accounts of what it's like to go through that process, which is that it can be very powerful. And I think for a lot of people, when you take away the... Uh, aspect of Scientology that are simply there to exploit its members, which are undeniable. Uh, you know, there are people who benefited from auditing. There are people who saw it as a life-changing experience, you know, and, and I think the master kind of does a great job of capturing that sense that you've stumbled across something that could actually change your life. Well, you, you mentioned in your book that, you know, this infamous bet between Heinlein and uh, Hubbard probably wasn't real or it happened you know could you explain that yeah so there's a famous anecdote that says um you know i mean i, I don't recall the exact wording right now but it's something like a uh, Heinlein bets hubbard that he uh, could not start a religion because hubbard had always said that you know the best way to make money was to start your own religion and you know it's it's a it's it's a nice story and it, it's almost certainly apocryphal um you know, there, there's there's no really credible source um, for that story at, at the time. And the thing about Hubbard is that, you know, after he becomes sort of infamous as the founder of Scientology, a lot of people claim to have been in the room when he had these ideas, even people like Harlan Ellison, where there is no way he could have been there, you know, at the time that this stuff was being conceived. You know, I mean, science fiction is full of these sort of uh, this folklore, this this uh, oral tradition of, of science fiction, which sometimes is valuable, but you, you look back and you look at the primary sources and the actual chronology, and you're like, okay, that probably didn't happen. So, you know, with, with Hubbard especially, uh, you, you have to take every non-sourced claim about his life and his career, uh, you know, with a grain of salt, because um, he is a figure around whom a lot of mythology very quickly gathered. Well, did did you get any grief from Scientology for this biography? Um, not to my knowledge. I, I uh, It's funny because I before it came out, I was like, what's going to happen? You know, are, are they going to 
respond in some way. I, I've never gotten a direct response from the church. I, I do know that some people involved with it have read the book. Um, the, the most interesting experience I had actually was uh, around the time the book came out, I had a um, I met with a number of former Scientologists who who had left the church and become critics of uh, Scientology. And uh, they were they were very receptive and they were very curious about one thing. They kept asking me, was Hubbard actually a good writer? Because when you're a Scientologist, obviously you're taught that Hubbard was probably the greatest writer who ever lived and the most important person of all time. And so they were actually very interested in hearing a an objective outsider tell them whether or not this fiction was any good. Because I had gone through and read all of Hubbard's science fiction and fantasy from that period. And, and I was like one of the few people around who could say, well, OK, so this book's OK. This one's not very good. You know, giving some kind of like a balanced perspective on um, on his actual literary merits, which, um, you know, it, it's hard to find. Uh, you know, there aren't a lot of discussions about his science fiction for its own sake. And so I think um, I, I, I was kind of interested in the fact that a lot of uh, former Scientologists were very curious about that one point. And your answer was? Um, I mean, Hubbard to me is... Uh, you know, so Theodore Sturgeon, who is one of his uh, contemporaries, you know, has a famous uh, law, Sturgeon's law, which is that 90% of everything is crap. Uh, and, you know, he's actually referring to science fiction. He's saying that if you look at the actual magazines, you know, and read the stories as they came out, you know, nine out of 10 stories are totally forgettable and, and, a, and a handful of classics from any period uh, survive. And this is true of individual writers, too. And, and I would say Hubbard is someone who wrote I would say four million words of fiction over the course of his career. And, you know, let's say 10% is good, even 5% is good. You know, it's not a great batting average, but there are stories there that are, are uh, I think, that hold up, you know, in the sense that um, stories from that period still do. Uh, there, there are some novels I liked. There are some short stories I liked. He is not the first person I'd recommend to anyone who wanted to learn more about that period. He's probably the 20th person I would recommend, you know, you read from that period. But, you know, I, I always say this, that if uh, Hubbard had not somehow founded Scientology, we would look back on him in the way that a lot of science fiction fans of a certain age think about people like um, El Sprague de Camp or Lester Del Rey or A.E. Van Vogt, who are like not household names, but they are well-regarded sort of second tier uh, writers from that period. And I think Hubbard would fit very comfortably in that group if he had somehow had a, had a very different afterlife. Well, so then what do you make of someone like Mitt Romney saying, I don't remember what year it was, mm -hmm. but that the Battlefield Earth was the most important book that he ever read? I don't think he said it was the most important book he ever read, but I think he said it was his favorite novel, which is, you know, <laughs> a, a fine distinction, I guess. Okay. Uh, I mean, Battlefield Earth is a very weird book. I mean, I read it for this project. It, it is sort of a page turner. You know, it just sort of keeps throwing stuff at you. Um, but it's a thousand pages long and it's written in this like hammering style where like every sentence is sort of like, you know, just pounding away at you and, and you know, a lot of exclamation points and, you know, it, it's very pulpy. Uh, and, and I can see why for certain people that kind of book could be appealing. And I find that kind of stuff fun for a few pages at a time. But for me, you know, once you get to like page 1000, you're like, please stop. I've had enough. Well, so... You establish how Campbell definitely had this idea of um, the Superman that he was cultivating. And so he was looking for some kind of science of the mind or psychology or something that would be, you know, transcend the current age. 
do you think like and even uh stranger in a strange land became this enigmatic book you know for the hippies in some way do you think that the idea of this um notion becoming quasi-religious was just inevitable yeah, I mean, it's a great question because, you know, the idea of the Superman in science fiction predates Campbell. You know, the, the figure Superman from in the comics, you know, is sort of an expression of the same impulse, which, um, you know, I mean, uh, the creators of Superman, you know, Schuster and um, what's his name, Siegel, uh, you know, they were science fiction fans. They, they, they've met through science fiction clubs and, and you know, they, they wrote Superman with kind of that backdrop in mind. Um, what what you see in science fiction is this really interesting series of attempts to engage with the idea of the Superman, uh, because, you know, within within like a few years, like the basic idea had been pretty much exhausted. And Campbell said, OK, we're going to try to get some new Superman stories written that are actually plausible. And, um, you know, he set down certain rules about how, um, you know, you can either it's, it's so hard for a regular person to understand how a Superman would think and behave that the only way to tell that story plausibly is to either keep him off stage the entire time or show him before his powers are fully developed. And so he wrote, he, he commissioned stories or, or, you know, published stories like um, A.E. Van Vogt's Slan, which is sort of a attempt to do uh, a story like that. Um, and then later on, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot to talk about here, but, uh, you know, Campbell is really trying to create a plausible Superman figure almost as a response to the Nazis. So, you know, he, he says, we're going to create an American Superman, you know, this is during World War II that represents our values. And so that Superman figure becomes much more grounded in engineering and in, in science, you know, becomes more plausible. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's still a very problematic idea. And so, as you said, Stranger to Strange Land is sort of Heinlein's, you know, Heinlein being a writer who worked with Campbell for years, you know, trying to kind of take apart what that would actually look like, um, you know, if you, if you had a man who had those powers in real life. And, you know, even more uh, intriguingly to me in some ways is Dune. Uh, so uh, Campbell was the publisher of the first Dune stories from Frank Herbert. And, you know, Campbell really saw those stories as Superman stories. And, and Herbert, uh, you know, understood this. And the first installment of Dune is a fairly Campbellian Superman story. But then later on in Dune Messiah and some of the sequels, he really deconstructs that figure in ways that Campbell really hated. And he, he didn't publish Dune Messiah. And uh, he really was personally offended by the idea that Frank Herbert would take this uh, quasi-religious figure who had worked so powerfully in other kinds of fiction as a hero and kind of say, you know, maybe you shouldn't follow this guy. Maybe this is not the right uh, path to take, you know, uh, if, if this, this being appears in your, your world, you know, maybe you shouldn't follow him blindly. And so the, the Dune series to me is kind of like the best uh, late um, deconstruction of the Superman figure that had been around in science fiction since at least the early 30s. Well, in 2012, I definitely was taken with this idea of, you know, the pulps and fandom and science fiction and all that. And, you know, I thought how much fun it would be to publish like a seasonal anthology. And I realized uh, really quick, like even finding people to write for that, you know, in a uh, amateur sort of way was really hard. Um, in terms of the time... And culture, you, you know, you're saying 90% of this oftentimes is, is bad. This, this was 
you know, I guess that's the thing I'm wrapping my head around where nowadays there's there's the internet, there's so much TV, there's uh, video games. There just isn't a need for the same kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Like uh, Campbell benefited a lot from good timing. You know, he, he came into the genre just as the, this generation of fans who had grown up reading science fiction were getting ready to write it for themselves because they loved it. And, you know, because previously it had been a lot of pulp writers, you know, who were not necessarily what we think of as science fiction fans. They're they just writing for the money. Uh, but Campbell inherits this amazing generation of science fiction fans who want to write for him. And it's at a time when the market is still fairly limited. Uh, he can, you know, one person could really shape science fiction and direct it as an editor in a way that I think is impossible today. And, and I think you're right. I think the way pop culture has expanded, I mean, I mean, Campbell, or at least science fiction and Juan, in that, you know, science fiction and fantasy dominate popular culture today in ways that would have seemed incredible in the 30s. And, and you know, so that, that's a triumph for the genre. But it's also a it also reflects the fact that um, it's too big now for any one person to control, which is probably for the best. Well, and these guys were making pretty good livings just writing stories. Yeah, no, which is also uh, something that's gone, right? Like uh, someone like Hubbard, you know, he made good money. He 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 was a pulp writer. He, he was a pro. He cranked out stories. And you could actually make a living writing short fiction in 1935, 1940, which is astonishing to me. And uh, it's no longer the case now. Yeah. Well, so what was it about Buckminster Fuller that called to you? And when is that book going to come out? So Fuller, to me, you know, he's someone that I've uh, found uh, interesting since, again, the period I, I've been talking about, my, my early teens, you know, I, I kind of came across his work um, largely through uh, the Whole Earth Catalog, which was a sort of um, compendium of books and tools for the counterculture that was really popular in the 70s, but which is still kind of a, a force in the Bay Area when I was growing up, or at least I was aware of it. And to me, Fuller was sort of this like very interesting figure, like a generalist and a designer who was solving problems, you know, that, um, you know, rather than going through political change, you could solve things through design, you know, and and, and by kind of grasping whole systems. You know, this is this is sort of Fuller's uh, persona. Right. And it was it was very compelling in the 50s. It was still compelling to me in the 90s. And so I said, I'm going to write a book about this guy who I think is sort of this comprehensive thinker. Um, and then as I got a little bit further on, I don't want to spoil it because I haven't quite finished the book yet, but, you know, he is, he is a complex figure. You know, he was not all that he, he claimed to be, or he was very different from, from what he claimed to be. You know, he could be very controlling. He could be very uh, difficult to work with. Um, he, you know, I mean, the, the, the nearest equivalent I can think of is to someone that we think of now as like a startup founder. I think a lot of the language that we associate now with Silicon Valley, this kind of messianic idea that we're going to change the world, you know, Fuller, he didn't invent that, but he refined it in a way that I think made a huge impression on people like, um, you know, even like Steve Jobs, who met Fuller briefly in the in the early 80s, you know, he, he, this, this sort of figure, this... Um, uh, you know, in a way, a figure that owes a lot to science fiction um, has kind of been transmitted through Fuller to the way um, startup founders and companies talk about themselves. So that to me was kind of the big the big hook here, which is that to understand startup culture and where this kind of uh, grandiose view of technology comes from, you have to understand Fuller's career because he really is the, the key figure there. Um, and, you know, this is something that didn't really 
emerge until I'd been working on this idea for a while. So, you know, it, it's kind of what the book ended up being about, along with being just a comprehensive biography of Fuller himself. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been my full-time project for the last couple of years. I, I'm going to deliver a draft pretty soon to my publisher, and ideally it'll be in stores sometime in late 2021. Well, so... This lineage has led you to the Bay Area where you grew up, it sounds like. Um, are mm -hmm. they still printing the pink pages? You know, that's a good question. I mean, I don't live there anymore. I, I live in Chicago uh, these days. And um, I, I, I know that uh, the examiner, are they, are they even still around? I, I haven't, I, I can't even remember. There have been so many mergers and, and closings of papers over the years. But, um, you know, I, I will say this, okay, uh, I have this very strong memory of those pink pages. And it's because it would just come to your door and it's like a big tabloid where you just sort of leaf through it to see what's going on. And you find things you never would have looked for. You know, I never would have looked for the tunnel. I never would have looked for if an adjust if I hadn't seen it mentioned in this uh, newspaper. And I think, you know, I, I talked about this elsewhere, but, you know, there is a certain loss of serendipity when you're just going online and, and you're getting the same articles kind of fed to you that uh, an algorithm has expected you to, to read. Because um, the, the nice thing about a physical paper is that uh, you, you find things that you weren't looking for. And oftentimes those things can change your life. So are you the type of writer, and so this is, this is intriguing to me now because a lot of the golden age science fiction is led, you know, directly to, you know, Silicon Valley in in, in the Bay Area, and a lot of, like like you were talking about, Steve Jobs, you know, this kind of um, grandiose, we're going to change the world, the technology is the answer, you know, it's just an extension of the science fiction. Um, are you the kind of writer that finishes the project, and then you have some downtime, and then the new idea comes to you, or do you already have the next idea ready to go as you're delivering your draft? I mean, a writer's life is very contingent on other factors, and I don't know what I'm doing next. You know, I don't have a contract for anything past this Fuller book. Um, I do have two ideas, both of which do kind of come out of what we've talked about. Uh, one's for a novel, which I haven't written in a while, and the other is for a work of nonfiction. And, and both are kind of my attempts to say, okay, I've done these books, what comes next? Because for me, Fuller was sort of like the obvious next step um, after Astounding, where you have a book about science fiction and how that affected uh, the, the real world. And then you have a figure who, for a lot of Americans in you know uh, the 1960s and 70s, really really stood for the future. So you know, how does America think about itself in terms of what the future holds? And so I have an idea for a nonfiction book that will kind of explore that same subject from a different angle. But um, I don't know yet whether I'm going to have a chance to write it or not. I, I really hope so, but, uh, but there's no telling. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, no, thank you. This was really fun. You bet. You've been listening to Alec Neville Lee on 42 Minutes, production of SyncBook Radio on thesyncbook.com. For more information about him, visit his website, nevola-lee.com, to which we'll link for more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows, or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. Feel free to use the search feature to explore the connections. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Uh, the Thanks so much. And a human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, 
cooperate, act. Alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, die gallantly. Specialization is for insects. <laughs> This love's a heart attack. 